Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello and welcome back everyone to Payroll Question Time. Let me introduce you to the panel and myself. For those that don't know me, I'm the host of the Payroll Podcast. I'm the founder of JGA Recruitment Group, which are a specialist payroll recruiter, and I'm a Reward 300 member. That's enough for me. Let me lead you to the panel to introduce themselves. Let's start with John Keeble. Thanks, Nick. My name is John Keeble. I'm an employment partner in DWF. We're an international law firm and uh, delighted to be here uh, as always as it gives me the opportunity to wear a shirt at least once a month. So, <laughs> And over to you, Samantha. I'm Samantha Mann. I'm here from Armstrong Watson. I'm the payroll training consultant supporting the payroll team, uh, who are the best team in the organisation. Hopefully no one from Armstrong Watson is listening. Um, and we serve employers and businesses, family businesses across the north and into Scotland. So as you might imagine, Scott, Scottish rate of income tax and arrestment orders is very much a t- topic of most days. Hi, my name is Lou Gray and I'm Head of Transitions and Operations at EY Absolute. I'm also a CIPP board member as well as being on the Reward 300 and I also have individual chartered status for payroll with over 30 years in payroll, 20 of them in local government. Fantastic. And Simon? I'm Simon Parsons, Director of UK Compliance Strategies for SD Works, which is uh, uh, the major European-based payroll service provider and European-based. It is a true European UK company. And uh, it's great to be with you. I chair the BCS Payroll Specialist Group and the Irene organisation sits on a number of consultation panels with governments uh, and with HMRC Bay's DWP uh, and the pension regulator, would probably say, Andy. I am part of Reward 300 as well. Fantastic. And my last but no means least, Andy Nichols. Yeah, we're going to look after and talk about joys of pensions as it fits into whatever we're talking about. And and my background's all payroll, so it's nice and neat and tidy in that respect. Fantastic. So as you can all see, an expert panel with years and years and of experience, a wealth of expertise we're going to be bringing to you today. The subjects we're going to be discussing are termination payments, national minimum wage for 2022, expenses and benefits in kind, so P11Ds, PSAs, uh, payrolling and class 1A NICs, IR35, the pensions update, and some hot topics of the day as well. Start with termination payments. A number of changes have been made to the treatment of termination payments and post-employment notice pay for income tax, also known as PENP. Now, they have both legal and payroll-related implications. So I'm going to go to both John and Simon to begin with, starting with Simon. If you can perhaps tell us a little bit about the payroll implications before we go to the the legal ones. Well, yes, we've had a couple of changes that came into law a couple of years ago. I don't think all employers or even potentially those that are coming up with termination agreements maybe appreciate them, but there is an obligation that notice is subject to tax and national insurance. In the old days, you could kind of cheat a bit. So if you uh, uh, sort of came with compensation as opposed to a notice, it was treated as tax and NI free. And the HMRC and the government, I guess, have gotten on to the fact that this was happening. And so compensatory notice is now also subject to tax and national insurance, whereas before it wasn't. So it's just knowing that aspect. And then they have this special calculation to be performed on a termination payment 
to determine which element is subject to that hacking NI as uh, notice, uh, which parts are part of the severance, which aren't, and meet the 30K uh, tax and NI free, and then also help determine the amounts above, which are subject to tax on the employee and a class 1A liability of 13.8% on the employer. Hopefully that made sense. I've used lots of terminologies there, but in effect, the PEMP aids the calculation of deciding what is taxable and deniable, what is not. And then you've got the decision on the 30K limits of which amounts are then subject to tax above and the class 1A liability on the employer. Well, John, if you could have a bit on the legal implications, that'd be, that'd be great. Yes, well, Simon's right. In the good old days, if you didn't have a contractual payment in lieu of notice clause, you had some chance of getting that tax free and, and that's all gone under the PENP rules. There are some slight twists uh, from a legal and a, a tax perspective, because of course what you've got to tax is the unexpired portion of the notice period. There are some twists on that, uh, certainly in case question of gross misconduct. And where someone's dismissed for gross misconduct, they're dismissed immediately because they've done something seriously wrong. Uh, and from a PENP point of view, uh, HMRC's view is that where an employee has been immediately or summarily dismissed and loses their right to a notice period or notice pay, uh, in effect, there isn't a PENP amount. But however, sometimes when someone's been dismissed, it can be overturned. And uh, in an employment tribunal claim, um, someone may say, well, look, you've dismissed me for gross misconduct, but that's wrong. I should have been entitled to my notice. Uh, and if that occurs, then you then move to a situation where you do have to carry out a PENP calculation. So it's a, a slight twist from a legal perspective to the PENP rules. Excellent. Now, I know we do have a poll, hopefully, on this subject, which is basically finding out how everyone is feeling about the changes. Hannah, are we able to run that poll? Super. So we've got a quick poll. If you get everyone involved here, if you can, please do put your answers in. Have the revised rules regarding the taxation of termination payments arising made easier? So yes, the rules are easier for everyone to understand. No, we are still not clear what the rules are. Almost, we understand pylon, but what is PENP about or for? We have not been impacted as yet. Please do vote and we will be commenting on the results of that poll in just a moment. While we do, we've also had a question come in. So if I can prepare you for this question, Simon, while we get those results. The question that's come in is this. Um, it's regarding Section 406B, uh, the IT for 2003, where we can make a severance payment, a wholly tax and NI free. It says our lawyers have advised us they are seeking HMRC approval, but we don't know how, uh, so we can make this payment. Is there any action we need to be aware of from a payroll perspective? Because the sum is large. Samantha, what are your thoughts on this poll? 40% are saying we understand pylon, but what is PENP all about? Some interesting results there. Only 11% um, are still not clear what the rules are. That's remarkable. But almost, we understand pay in lieu of notice, but what is the post-employment notice pay all about? 40% there. And I'm really pleased to see the 29%. Yes, the rules are easier for everyone to understand. That is really good. But what uh, the 40%, now I know Simon will probably go into a little bit more detail um, as he answers 
Nicola's next questions. But of course, that post-employment notice pay is an all-important calculation, which asks us to use a formula. Anyone who knows me knows, knows that my head almost explodes when we start talking formulas. But it, within that formula, we've looked, we're looking at the basic pay. We're looking at the days in the notice period. We're looking at the days in the pay period. And then, of course, we're considering the taxable elements of the settlement, the relevant tax award, the RTI, RTA, sorry. And of course, Simon's already mentioned the 30,000 limit. Um, if we were looking at statutory redundancy pay, that would automatically sit within the 30,000 limit. I wouldn't fall within any of these um, calculations. Uh, but I think they are really interesting uh, results. And I think this is something, this is a, uh, probably a, a subject that we will revisit in the future, uh, because I think it's going to run and run. What is interesting, of course, is yes, this was introduced, these changes were introduced back in the 6th, on the 6th of April uh, 2018 as a result of simplification measures uh, made by the Office of Tax Simplification. Not too certain quite how that worked. But there have been slight tweaks, of course, to the regulations um, and the wording since April 2020 regarding um, the amount uh, that goes in there. And let's not forget, of course, the 13.8% Class 1A national insurance contribution that exists in real time where the payments exceed the 30,000 uh, tax-free amount. I'm going to hand over to you, Simon, because you've got questions to answer. Actually, just before we do answer that question, quick, I'm going to ask just to jump in a quick one. What would you do for the 11% who are still not clear what the rules are? Where would you advise they went to try and help them understand quickly with what is a very complex and large subject? It is. I mean, well, firstly, there's an excellent article that I, I read by Susan Ball and Paul Tucker, uh, which was written a couple of years ago when the new rules were being introduced. Um, and we can place, if that's all right with everybody else on the panel, I'm going to pop that uh, link into the chat box. Uh, and then, of course, we've got HMRC's manuals. There's a whole host of information on the taxation of termination payments. So we'll pop a couple of links in there. Um, and of course, um, there's a a range of webinars. Uh, HMRC have touched on this, but only, you know, they don't really delve into this because this is a tax specialist area. But as a starter for 10, we'll pop some links to further information to signpost you to further information, if that will be helpful. Yeah, amazing. That would be fantastic, Simon. That'd be great. So over to you then, Simon. We've got a client here that, you know, wants to make a large severance payment, wholly taxed and NI free. Uh, what are the, uh, the sum is large. So what are the uh, implications from a payroll perspective we need to be aware uh, I thought a bit more on this, and I think there's another fact to this that wasn't clear in the original question. But generally, severance is just a name for something. So as a general principle, severance, termination, redundancy, uh, settlement agreements all have uh, interchanging meanings and may have underlying differences to them. So as a general principle, a severance payment would still be subject to PEMP, the 30K limit amounts over. But there's a reference to an IT perception, I think, there, um, Nick, which is probably puts a different angle on it. And, and it wasn't clear in the original question, which I think relates to medical exemption, which is slightly different. So it may be a disability case. I, I find this quite often. Sometimes the terminology is used. We'll have that from some of our clients. They'll just quote something. For example, they'll say, well, this is a modified scheme. What does modified scheme mean? And the reality is, well, it has multiple meanings. So it depends on the context of the term. So here is a severance payment, a termination payment, or is it a disability settlement 
because they're actually unfit to work. Um, it's slightly different, isn't it, John, for I'm thinking for medical severance? Yes, yes, it is. Um, under 406, there are specific rules that, that apply to uh, injury or, or disability. Uh, and if you fall within that section, um, any payments uh, can be made uh, on a basis which is both tax-free and free from NICs. It's a, a reasonably complex uh, area and probably take a, a section all in itself. The overarching thing that you need to bear in mind to take into account, I think, is that you should always be seeking uh, approval for making that payment. And that's certainly what we've done. We've found that when you do make those applications, uh, HMRC can come back reasonably quickly um, in terms of giving you clearance on that. Uh, and we've had some that have been two weeks, some that have been slightly longer uh, than that. But provided that the, that the reason for, for the termination is a disability, that's uh, the driver for it, uh, then there is some scope for getting the entirety of that payment on a wholly tax-free basis. Can I make another comment on the PEM? Because I think uh, uh, Sam's talked about an article a couple of years ago. There have been some slight adjustments. I'm saying this from memory, yeah. uh, to the extent that with termination payments, some people used to make adjustments in relation to foreign service. And I think some of those exemptions have actually been removed. So you yes, used sir. to be able to claim, well, for two years of my career, I worked overseas. So you can't count that bit. And I don't think that's still the case. No, I think it it's taxable. It, it, it isn't. Uh, and just, well, just one point on something slightly different, which is the, the 30K. Um, whilst statutory redundancy payment will fall within that uh, under 401, if there is non-statutory redundancy pay, i.e. Uh, an enhancement, that doesn't fall within the 30K exemption. Excellent. Well, I think we know it's a big subject, Terry, that we could probably spend the entire 90 minutes talking over, but I hope that gives everyone a little bit of a whistle-stop tour. We're going to include those links that Samantha highlighted in the chat as well, and we'll try and cope those in the covering notes, keeping an eye on that. But let's move on to subject number two, which is national minimum wage for 2022. We're going to be talking about the low pay commission, salary sacrifice, or living wage and furlough. I'd actually like, though, to start with, um, with yourself, Simon, because when we were talking about this yesterday, you gave a really interesting story about what a complex childcare case that had had different Im, um, implications for national minimum wage. So I wonder if you could tell the viewers today about that example. Uh, yeah, there was a conference held quite recently. So I'm one of the national minimum wage uh, stakeholder conference members uh, because I sit on what's called the employer payroll group of the HMRC. And they have a subgroup which meets with the national minimum wage uh, people because uh, currently it's policed by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. And uh, it's been a couple of scenarios that we've portrayed a number of times. But the reality is, what do you do with holiday? And then there's a consideration of what do you do with furlough? Someone, you, you can't actually sacrifice uh, furlough pay. It's post-sacrifice. So the funding of the uh, salary sacrifice benefit is entirely the employers, really, during periods of furlough. Uh, however, we have flexi-furlough. So people are receiving money for uh, working and receiving furlough. What happens? Now, if you deduct the salary sacrifice against the earnings, your national minimum wage earnings will be deducted equally. You could even say they've got money from furlough to cover that. But that extends to other things such as holiday. So holiday pay does not really count for NMW pay. 
So if you go on holiday for a week, if you had £50 childcare vouchers taking off and you've been on holiday for the whole week and not received any other pay, um, that's fine. If you're on holiday four days and you're paid for one day and you paid and you've earned the same amount of money, the £50 would come off the one day's money. You may well be as an employer in breach of national minimum wage law. So it's just pointing out it's very confusing very convoluted, but fairly strictly policed by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs and, uh, and Bayes in their policy, because the, um, I, I think, Paul, is it Paul Scully's the latest minister that deals with it? They have not uh, approved salary sacrifice, reducing anything other than the pay for counting towards national minimum wage. So be aware. It's quite a tricky subject. Yeah, it sounds tricky. And I'm going to expand that we spoke yesterday about some of the salary sacrifice considerations we need to think about, particularly because salary sacrifice is a reduction uh, to pay, not a reduction from pay. So can you elaborate a little bit about what salary sacrifice is and how we need to think about it? Yes, salary sacrifice um, is, and anyone who knows me again knows I have a little hobby horse on this. Um, salary sacrifice is a contractual agreement between the employer and the employee where the employee contractually agrees to sacrifice, i.e. give up um, a higher cash payment in return for a non-cash benefit. Childcare vouchers provide us with a hist largely historical now um, good example. But, but of course, when the um, tax relief, the new tax reliefs under, I think it was Gordon Brown's chancellorship, when they were introduced, of course, there was a lot of concern, particularly from certain sectors, about the fact that actually their salary sacrifices, if they weren't reflected on the payslip, um, as a, a kind of a reduction to the pay, um, they couldn't offer salary sacrifices to do with the terms and conditions, long-standing historical union agreed terms and conditions. And so what we saw from the introduction of childcare vouchers was a gradual increase in the reflection of salary sacrifice deductions on the pay slip, which almost made it look as if there was a um, there was actually pay being deducted rather than actually that contractual reduction. And the employee doesn't have a contractual right to that pay. And where they do actually have a contractual right to that pay, um, there is a question mark over whether or not the sacrifice is actually a legitimate sacrifice and whether or not it's just tax avoidance. And there are tax cases that back that up historically. So I think the, the point of this particular discussion really is to make clear that this is a contractual reduction to pay and not a deduction from pay. And whereas Simon's already highlighted where you have deductions from pay, then they can have quite significant national minimum wage implications. I mentioned the pay slip there, Samantha. It'd be a really good time to perhaps raise our next poll because we talk about on the poll what evidence of contractual changes do people provide for a salary sacrifice arrangement? So I don't know if you agree. It'd be great to get everyone's view on this. Are you highlighting it on a pay slip, as Samantha mentioned, some people do? Are you highlighting it through contract variation letters? Perhaps you don't need to do anything at all or you don't have any salary sacrifice or maybe use an application form. If you can complete that poll for us, it'd be great to uh, see the results and maybe have a comment on those as well. It's a common misunderstanding that people think they're buying a benefit. Uh, if they're buying it, the revenue would consider that you have to pay that out of your net pay. Uh, is salary sacrifice isn't buying anything. The employer is actually giving it to you for free. Can, can, can you salary sacrifice holiday pay? Oh, no, uh, well, you, you can have uh, you can have holiday pay as a salary sacrifice arrangement to increase your entitlement, but you you can if it was the only amounts there. Yeah, that's the oddity. 
Interesting. If it's so mixed, get... it doesn't reduce the holiday pay, it reduces the other pay. Interesting. So as we get the results of those um, those poll results in just a yeah. moment, Lou, I wonder if you could talk to us about some of the considerations in terms of how this relates to the real living wage. I think in reality, I mean, the real living wage, and it's which, em which employers have signed up to the real living wage. At the moment, the priority, I think, for many businesses to go back on the national minimum wage and what their employees are getting, because I think maybe some employers aren't aware of all the deductions and all the considerations that you have to make whenever you're looking at your employees, you know, whenever they clock in and clock out, is that the actual time that they've worked? Or do you, as an employer, make an employee come to work 15 or 20 minutes beforehand? You know, do they have to stay behind work, for example, in the shops to take off the tills? You know, as an employer, do employers make their employees pay for their their shoes or any part of their uniform so that you're considering what actually is the net pay. And for national minimum wage, whenever you're looking at a particular week, if somebody has dropped behind in the national minimum wage, that actually has a huge implication for that employee and for your business. And HMRC are really um, cracking down on ensuring that employers do understand their full responsibility because this is a very complex area that you know was highlighted even on the 31st of December with the name and shame. This isn't going to go away and employers have to recognise what their responsibilities are and the questions and the records that they're going to have to produce. From a, from a legal standpoint, um, John, as Samantha mentioned, there are some, you know, some evidence, some cases out there which relate to uh, salary sacrifice avoidance potentially. What, what are you seeing at the minute? Any, any additional, no, I guess, observations you could add? Uh, not, not so much on the salary sacrifice, but certainly from the national minimum wage, that the most issues that we've had coming through from uh, clients uh, has generally been around the uniform issue and the nuances around that in the sense of if you dictate that there's a particular dress code and someone has to wear black trousers and a white top uh, and they have to go out and, and buy those particular items, uh, that would affect national minimum wage. Uh, and an overarching point is that the one area where I think employers do try hard to comply with the national minimum wage, but there's the most inadvertent and unintentional breaches. We've actually had a, a question come in, which I'd like to just ad address to the team here if we can. So the question's come in. Um, it says salary sacrifice is taken from the gross pay. So the employee is having a tax and NI saving. Is this right? If so, to make sure they are above the uh, national minimum wage, do we use the remaining gross pay to make sure they are above the national minimum wage? I would say it, it depends, Nick, because it depends what the remaining pay is. So only a base uh, pay is considered part of national minimum wage pay. So if they've got a, a premium over the time amount, so if, if they've done some hours at time and a half, the half doesn't count. Uh, so there is an element of being very careful and uh, in all these aspects. So generally, if people are working normally, it's probably not a challenge. The challenge is when they go on sick, maternity or they're a part period starter or there's been some other flexi furlough that's come into play that the real challenges come in but sometimes there's inadvertent things so if i'm coming up from my retirement and i decide i want to salary sacrifice 100 percent of my pay uh into the pension scheme because that would really benefit me and get the tax relief 
uh, the employer has just paid you nothing and they will be required to pay the national minimum wage for all the hours you work. So there's an element of don't agree to things which will cause problems. Uh, but quite often it's sort of, but it just doesn't make sense. Uh, it must be allowed is the type of response. And I agree with you. It, you'd think it would, but it isn't. It's much more complex than that. And they are extremely strict. So there's an element of understanding what is paid for our national minimum wage purposes and not. Uh, I mean, here we've got really this part on real living wage. Real living wage is different. And I'd probably say it's possible to pay the real living wage and breach national minimum wage because the calculation basis is different. Generally, you think it wouldn't happen, but you could actually pay the real living wage and salary sacrifice everything, and you wouldn't have breached real living wage, but you would have breached national minimum wage, which is lower because you wouldn't have earned anything. So it's being very careful, and it's just getting that concept that you're not buying anything. If you were, it wouldn't be tax I free. I think it was good to raise the profile. It's not an easy subject, there, as you highlighted. Sorry to cut you off, Samantha. J jump in. The, the, the one common calculation needed um, as we approach a new year for national living wage and national minimum wage calculations or new new rates is that salary sacrifice. And what we're seeing um, is employees being removed from the salary sacrifice. So it's almost to the detriment of them because the, what, the person who asked the question recognises there are NI savings to be had where you, where you can contractually sacrifice an amount. You know, these should benefit the lower paid, but actually the lower paid, um, you know, lose out because they have to come out of the salary sacrifice for fear that the employer would be um, falling foul of NMW regulations. So, and that's something that has to happen year in, year out, those calculations. Well, let's have a look at some of poll results. So maybe, Lee, you can comment on what the results come in here. Have we got those ready, Hannah? Here we go. So the evidence of contractual changes to provide for salary sacrifice, we've got the overwhelming result here is highlighting on a payslip. What are your thoughts on these, Lou? I think, I mean, it's important that it is on a payslip so that employees understand. But going back to my roots, it, there should be contract variation and letters shared with employees so that it is in writing. One of the areas that this um, was highlighted to me in particular is if you have, and this has happened in the jobs I've worked at, whenever um, ladies go off on maternity and they have and they already have a salary sacrifice arrangement in place. Sometimes it can be a shock that their maternity is based on the amount after the salary sacrifice and very often they haven't understood it and don't realise the impact of a salary sacrifice arrangement whenever it's there. Um, it's always if, no, if, they don't, if an employer doesn't have to, to need it, then that's great. Not percent is excellent. We don't have salary sacrifice five percent. Um, I think that the payroll part of me thinks that's good too. Um, I would be interested <laughs> to hear about the application form, but I do think it's important that it's on a payslip because then the employee is having that reiterated. This is a salary sacrifice arrangement, but um, a contract variation is a letter that's shared with an employee on the arrangement that they've entered into because it does have an impact on their salary. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone, yeah. for putting an answer on that poll. It's really, really important to us so we can comment on those. We've actually had another question as well, so I'm loving the interactivity coming in from you viewers. Please do keep the questions coming. Uh, the next question is, what if an employee is on maternity SMP only? 
but the employee still wants to have the salary deduction, especially as childcare, as they have a child in care. Can we allow this if this is what they want, or are we do we legally have to say no? You legally have to give them the benefit and charge them nothing is the reality. So salary sacrifice ends. It's illegal to salary sacrifice. But because the childcare voucher or benefit is a non-cash benefit, it's a maternity right. You as an employer have to fund it. So they can stay in the scheme and not pay a penny. Well, it has to be said, if my memory serves me correct, Simon, uh, and you could probably add a few more details to this, is there was sure. a case, a, tri uh, a tribunal case, that actually put a whole big question mark over what the validity of that statement, which we all believe to be the case, but whether or not an employer could say, no, you're not entering the salary sacrifice now because you're going on maternity leave. We're not going to do these vouchers, you know, so. Um, That's right. There were a couple which, of conditions there, Sam. One is that there had to be part of the agreement in the first place and there's been a bit of a sting in the tail which is outlined in the statutory payments specialist uh, group uh, minutes from I think November 2019 from memory I'm saying that from memory which uh, is where the HMRC came back and said that the case argued by Peninsula in the court was that it was a diversion of salary and the view is that, and therefore, it was only the employee allocating their monies to the provision of the childcare. Well, the answer back from HMRC is only provision of childcare by an employer is tax and NI free. So if you're buying childcare, it's after tax and NI. So why are you giving tax and NI relief? So the provision is uh, understanding what the arrangement is. But if people think they're diverting money on behalf of the employee to a benefit, it's not an employer-provided benefit. If you're providing it as a true salary sacrifice as an employer-provided benefit, non-cash benefits are required to be provided for the duration of maternity leave. Well, it's certainly a, a hot topic here. The questions are now flying in, which is great. If we don't get to all of them today, be rest assured we will follow up with some notes post-webinar with answers to all your questions. We're going to pick just a couple of these, if I may. Firstly, I think the case apparently you're referring to, Samantha, was the Peninsula versus Donaldson yeah. case, uh, which has been highlighted here. So thank you ever so much for that, Beverly. Um, the question then is, can you salary sacrifice against a car allowance whilst an employee is on maternity leave? is question one. And then another question here, just because they're obviously on the same theme, even if an employer covered childcare voucher in the contract, will they freeze it? So those two questions need answering if we can. Well, um, if, if they're paying another amount of money on top of SMP, so the, the reality is statutory maternity pay, whether it's funded by an employer or partly by the government, is a state payment. Same with statutory sick pay. You could say employers fully fund statutory sick pay. It is not an employer payment. It is a state payment funded by the employer. That is kind of a bit of a strange distinction there. So is the employer paying that money? They are, but they're paying it because they're paying it on behalf of the state. So it's not an employment payment. Uh, so it's uh, understanding that. So if you're actually paying a car allowance on top of the SMP, uh, you can salary sacrifice that car allowance. Yes. But you can't salary sacrifice the SMP. But the provision of the benefit is required during maternity leave. On the other, about freezing childcare, uh, potentially you'd be in breach of uh, equality law. 
they may actually be committing an act of sex discrimination. The only exception was if it was within the agreement of the salary sacrifice arrangement up front, and if it really was a diversion of salary, there shouldn't be any tax and NI relief anyway, because it's a failed sacrifice. And last question, just for the next subject, we've got lots to get through, but I want to ask this last one because it relates to the poll. So, Lou, if I can come to you for this. Um, Emma has asked, if, uh, if we have an employee benefits portal where employees select their benefits and it highlights that they're entering into a salary sacrifice scheme on that portal, does this suffice without having to do a contract variation letter as well? I think maybe John would be better on that question. I mean, sure. my feeling, my training has always been it has to be in writing to the employee, but maybe the employee portal takes that away, John? Well, it, it depends on the terms of the employee portal. It, it may well be that there's a bit where someone ticks a box uh, and as a result of that, they, they agree that this is a contractual variation. But I have to say, being the pedantic lawyer that, 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 I, that I am, it, it makes me slightly nervous when you have arrangements which really involve a contractual change, which aren't documented in some form of contract or contract variation, which I think would always be the safer route from my perspective. Sure. Well, thank yeah. you, everyone, for getting involved in that. I'm going to move us on to the next topic because I think we're, we've got a lot to get through yet. We've got expenses and benefits in kind to discuss. Now, before we jump into this, I'm going to go straight to a poll because our audience has been so interactive so far. I want to keep them on that uh, on that vein. So if we can launch a uh, poll three, uh, Hannah, that'd be, that'd be great, which is titled Collating and Completing the PAYE Settlement Agreement Calculation Can Be Time-Consuming. Has the pandemic impacted this task this year? So while we collate those results, uh, if you can click either yes, there are a lot less items to include. Yes, it is more time-consuming with different items. No, it is just the same, or we don't complete PSAs, are the options you've got there. Now, while we're gathering those results, we'll definitely come back to those. But there's obviously lots of things to consider here, because as a nation, we are all starting to orchestrate the complex and sensitive operation of returning employees to offices and, uh, and places of work, which will presumably result in returning of homeworking equipment being just one element that I can see here as being something to consider. So perhaps I can jump to you, Samantha. Can you tell us a little bit about how COVID is potentially impacting on expenses and benefits in kind? Uh, absolutely, Nick. I mean, COVID had a massive impact um, in the um expenses and benefits in kind uh, arena, uh, simply because of the number of allowances that HMRC have had to make um, to the benefits code um, in recognition of the fact that so many employees were required to work from home, just up sticks and work from home, and therefore provide for themselves a, a working environment. And I know we've discussed working environments in the home due to COVID um, many times in previous question time panels. Um, and as Nick said, the recent employer bulletin, um, which I still don't like the look of, sorry, sorry, GDS, um, um, just prompted us to remember that the exemption of providing home the equipment or reimbursing an employee for purchasing equipment where they've had to do that was exempt and that had been extended until 5th of April 2022. However, where the employee returns to the office but keeps the uh, equipment, which could happen, and the ownership is passed from the uh, employer to the employee, then there would be a tax 
taxable uh, benefiting kind there, and that would be based on the market value at the date at which ownership exchanged. Uh, and again, there's further information to be had on HMRC's website on that. So indeed, it's had a massive impact. So one question I did have here is, what about those that have only recently discovered some of the benefits of home working? The employer's a little bit late to the party. They've gone, oh, I could have actually given home working benefits during that part. We're in a new tax year now. You've kind of, you've missed yeah. out. What, what would be the implications there? Um, well, I, I think a good example to that would be the payments that, or the, the payment that either can be made free of tax by the employer to the employee, the home working payment, which kind of is around some amount that kind of recognises the fact that the employee will have additional expenses due to home working. This isn't new because of COVID, it has to be said. This, is a, sure. this has been around for a long time. The Chancellor increased the rate, not in the last budget, but in the budget 2020, from £4 a week to £6 a week. And then, of course, under normal circumstances, an employer would be required to work at home as, as part of the agreement and therefore giving them the right to have this payment free of tax. But of course, COVID changed, changed all of that and it put employees who would normally not be required to work at home um, actually um, at home. So this was extended to them. Now, the payment can either be made free of tax and next by the employer to the employee or the employee uh, can claim tax relief on that where the employer doesn't pay it. And that's also been extended. And of course, you can claim back amounts. So if you're only just sort of coming to the party now and starting to think about this, this amount, the individual can claim tax relief. Um, for previous years, and they would do that through their personal tax account. Now, of course, they can claim additional expenses, actual real expenses, but they would need to evidence those, whereas the £6 payment doesn't require any evidence. So, good, good example has been given in our first question coming in already here. So, a home worker leaves and they've been given a desk by the employer. Do they now have to give the desk back or do they have to pay tax on it? So what do they need to do? Yeah, they, they, it's it's not their desk. Um, the employer has provided it uh, for them to work at home. Um, and, and, and as I mentioned, if they retain ownership, if the employer says, right, OK, you can have that, then there's a calculation to be had, which is based on the market value of that amount at the point at which the ownership is transferred. And my memory suggests it's 20% of the market value would be become the taxable benefit. I'm hoping that Simon will nod there, um, at least you know, kind of <laughs> suggesting that I've remembered that correctly. My memory is a bit dodgy at the best of times. But again, um, full details of how that would be uh, achieved are to be found in the employment income manuals. Super. Now, let's jump to the mileage question, just because, Simon, you gave a really interesting uh, account of a scenario and some potential 2022 implications uh, for travel allowance. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Uh, sure. I'm sure I'm not alone, but uh, you could say this is sort of a personal example, uh, and, but I'm cited to it, so I have the money aside. But I normally do between 12 and 14,000 business miles a year. I have my own car. So on that basis, I get uh, uh, 45 pence tax allowance on 10,000 miles and 25 pence for every mile over. So about four or 5,000 pounds worth of business expense which is tax-free. Uh, so I'll save 20 or 40 or 45 percent, depending on where your earnings are. The challenge, of course, is we've been in the pandemic. And now HMRC have not adjusted my personal allowances. They know that that's what I do every year. So they add on an allowance to my tax code. When I do my self-assessment return in January, 
is going to declare that my business mileage for 2021 was about 240 miles because I've been in lockdown. Now, if I uh, so the relief on that is 40% of uh, 45 pence. So there's going to be a significant amount of tax that I haven't paid. That's going to hit employees that have normally been receiving uh, business mileage and have been doing everything by Zoom and Teams uh, since uh, March 2020. That will hit the payment of the tax for under self-assessment for January 2022. It will change the tax code for the remainder of 21-22, and it will drop the tax code for 22-23, potentially automatically, even though I may be returning to some business miles, although I predict it won't be 12 to 14,000. It's probably going to be more like six to eight. So I'm just thinking that the Chancellor may be looking to some uh, sudden expense gains because we as workers are not suffering those expenses since the beginning of the pandemic. Lots of people might be a bit shocked about the tax liabilities that occur in January. Certainly a big shock for me because I do similar mileage to you. So it has huge implications that I never would have considered. And so, um, yeah, I'm on the other side of the fence. I don't get to process and calculate all of this. This is for you complex payroll professionals to handle. But uh, it sounds like a bit of a minefield. What about the uh, PSA considerations, Samantha, for the PAY settlement agreements? Can you tell us a little bit about any changes that will be impacting those? Um, well, it's not so much recent changes when, when we get together to sort of bang heads to see what detail we would discuss. And as you might imagine, this is a timely topic because of the 6th of July deadline for submitting our P11Ds. But the pay-as-you-earn settlement agreement, which many will be aware of, is an agreement that takes certain items that are minor, irregular or impracticable to assess and report on a P11D. It takes them out of the employee taxation space uh, and puts the bill firmly with the employer. Uh, and I, when, it, when I think of an example for an impracticable, there was a dear friend once gave an example of a box of Mars bars. So in the kitchen next to the kettle, a box of Mars bars is provided for the staff to just take, uh, have one as they make a cup of tea. I mean, obviously, these days it would be a bowl of fruit. It wouldn't be a, a box of Mars bars. Um, but it would be impracticable, of course, or impractical um, to calculate the value that each individual employee takes. Those of us who are chocoholics, uh, like myself, uh, would take, I don't know, umpteen every cup of tea, and I have a lot of cups of tea during the day. Uh, but then, of course, when I joined Slimming World, that amount had dropped. But at the end of the year, the employer would really just not know what to put on a P11D for me. And that's that's the idea of a um, where a, a PSA is probably not a good example, but it works for me in helping me to understand this pay-as-you-earn settlement agreement. Now, the agreement used to have to be made annually. But in recent years, um, again, down to simplification measures, the idea would be that an employer would enter into an agreement with HMRC, uh, referred to as an enduring agreement. And the items that were shown on that agreement would, and that agreement would stay in place unless anything changed. And I think our question relates to, to that and whether or not, I know in talking to individuals over the last few years, I know that this can be an extremely time-consuming 
project to actually bring together, particularly for global employers, to bring together all of those amounts, those elements that they would normally include in a pay settlement agreement computation. And of course, on that computation, you're calculating the tax burden that the employee would have suffered had they had that burden themselves. And the employer, of course, is is calculating what value of tax they would need to pay on behalf of the employee, as well as the class 1B national insurance contributions. And it just intrigues me to wonder how that process has changed this year uh, for individuals where these particularly global employees might not have travelled, like Simon, um, as much as normal. Super, fantastic. And for you, Lou, you're obviously responsible for multiple client payrolls, got a lot of experience for potentially clients missing payrolling benefits deadline. So, you know, what do we do in that circumstance? What are the HMRC consequences of doing so as well. Can you elaborate for us? Yeah, certainly. Of course, on the at the, the middle of February, HMRC unleashed the bulletin that told us that informally payrolling benefit had to end and um, employers had to register by the 6th of April so that everything going the, through the payroll was logged with them. Now, as we're now into June, I've had a number of clients have come and have said, even though we're continuing to process the benefits through the payroll. That would be um, an arrangement that the employer would have. We'd be waiting for instruction. And now we're finding out that some employers have not registered with HMRC or have missed the deadline. What um, we've initially said to our clients is to go back to HMRC and see what they do, um, what they would recommend. Um, We've had some clients maybe only missed it by a couple of days. And what would they be wanting, what steps to take? But now in June, we're in the process of reversing out some of the informally payrolling benefits because there's been no update. We have received no information and it's better to be safe than sorry at this stage to ensure that everybody's compliant. So I think it is very important important. It was a very tight turnaround, six weeks to get an employer to register for the payroll or benefits. If an employer wasn't set up, of course, they had to wait for their their ID to be able to go through that process. That was taking maybe three to five working days. So then the windows start to to um, narrow. And of course, in EY Absolute, we have global payrolls. So we're talking about businesses that are across the globe. And sometimes it's communicating that clear information for everybody to understand. So, I mean, what I would suggest is reach out to HMRC in the first instance, see if you can get a response. Of course, I know probably some of you are rolling your eyes at me thinking, have you tried to get a response from HMRC? Yes, I have. And sometimes you have good days and sometimes you have not so good days. But I still would be old-fashioned in reaching out and talking to them and see if there's an arrangement or a way forward. Otherwise, it's back to the drawing board um, doing what we're doing, reversing out, showing the clients the before payslip, the after payslip, trying to explain it so that all employees understand what the heck is going on in their payroll. Super. Now, we've had a question coming again. So I'm going to bring this back to you, uh, Simon, because it relates to P11D. Uh, Do you need to report renewing a visa on a P11D. When you, if the employer's making, meeting the costs, I would is have that to what we're it. talking about here? Oh, if they're covering the costs, that might be, uh, I don't know, I don't know if you can help me out on this one, John, uh, if your view of where an employer actually meets some of the immigration costs of an individual. Not something I've had to deal with, Simon, actually. Yeah, it may be one we have to think about and we'll answer in the uh, Q&A feedback after, Nick. 
But I suspect if um, the employer is considered to be meeting a liability of the individual, then potentially it's taxable and an eyeball. But, uh, but there may be considered that that's a genuine business expense, is it, in the arrangement of the work? Well, let's have a look at the, uh, the poll results then. If we can go back to those, Hannah, let's see what we've come back with. Uh, perhaps, Lou, you could uh, comment on those poll results again as they come in. We were there for just a moment and they flashed away. Here we go. So the overwhelming result then is no, it is just the same, 40%. What yeah. are your thoughts on that, Lou? I, I mean, I would have felt that it would have been just the same. I suppose the added complication is COVID, the pandemic, and as Sam covered there, what difference has it made to the employer and what they're doing? Um, there is that unfortunate 16% that says, no, sorry, 15% that it is more time consuming, but with different items. But of course, whenever you do have different items, it's trying to figure out where they fit in and how you have to word it. And then you've got the, the lucky 29% who don't have to complete PSA. So that's definitely a gift. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I what I would add there, um, of course, is where they have different items that wouldn't ha haven't already been approved by HMRC and uh, included in the agreement. Uh, uh, you know, they would need to be added. So, an, a further application would need to go off to HMRC. You know, I, I'm thinking about the previous question. Actually, I mean, there are a couple of elements there. Uh, firstly, if uh, you're taking on board an employee's liability or an employee's debt, that would be subject to class one national insurance contributions. But equally, because it's it might be minor or irregular, uh, might meet the irregular uh, element referred to in a PSA, it's possible those um, visa costs could be included within a pay-as-you-earn settlement agreement. Please don't quietly quote me to HMRC, but it certainly would tick the box of being irregular. It's not going to be a regular payment. So uh, I'm not too certain how much it costs. So I don't know whether it would meet the minor amount, but it doesn't have to meet all three. It only has to meet one of those three. Um, yes. So it could be included on a PSA. Well, we like the challenging questions coming in. We've been knee deep in the legislative payroll questions today, which is great, and some real interaction coming in. Before we jump into the next subject, where which is a bit of a pivot away from the, uh, the, the, the nitty gritty of payroll legislation as we jump into R35, there's a couple of questions that came in on our last subject that just came in after we started talking about expenses. If you don't mind me referring back to, I think there's some pressing questions here. Uh, one of them has come in uh, just following on from your response on national minimum wage, Simon. It says, if employers cover the cost if they fall under the national wage due to maternity rights, how about cycle to work schemes? If the person is on maternity leave and they fall under national minimum wage, do we have to cover this too? Or, or so do we recover any salary sacrifice if they're on maternity leave? You can't recover any salary sacrifice from SMP. Uh, that's a fact. Now, what some cycle schemes may do is extend the recovery period. So they may stall it and start recovery again once someone returns into payment. But in theory, you could say, actually, uh, it is uh, the employer that's on the hook all the time. I think what's the challenge is with some type of sacrifice is understanding what they are. The provision of the benefit is fully funded by the employer regardless. The salary sacrifice arrangement is uh, agreeing to a contractual pay cut, which may just happen to be the same amount or more or even less. During maternity, you have no pay to uh, recover from because you haven't paid them anything, but they are entitled to continue the benefit. So some schemes will defer the collection. So quite often with a cycle scheme there for one, two years, and if you've got maternity in the middle, what they do is in effect delay it a year. Whether that's right or wrong, 
is something you need to discuss with a professional because some may see that as being a discriminatory act, but others would say that that's fine. Before questions come in, I said, please, can you answer this question before you jump to the next subject? So I'm going to do that for you. Thank you, Jackie, for sending it in. It says, can we just clarify, I'll come to you for this one, Samantha. Can you just clarify the discussion around childcare vouchers and salary sacrifice? If an employee goes on maternity leave, we're used to still provide them at the employer's cost, but HR will advise we no longer need to. Your discussion so far hasn't answered this. And in addition, could you also please include pension salary sacrifice? Does the employer still need to pay the employee sacrificed amount when on maternity? So obviously a lot of questions here around maternity and, and uh, benefits. Um, yes, and both of those are really good questions. I'm actually going to sort of hope that John kind of leaps in there with a, with a legal angle from this. Now, Simon pointed out we've got the Peninsula case, and it was the Peninsula case versus Donaldson. And thank you for the uh, yeah. mention of that. Whoever popped that in the chat is what really created the question over this. Because when an employee goes on maternity leave, they no longer have the right remuneration. So the question is, are, are the payments, do are they considered to be remuneration? And if they are remuneration, then, you know, that would stop just as like their salary would stop and in that, in that place would be a statutory maternity pay. So the question is, does it have to stop or not? As Simon said, it which relates to the details of the contractual agreement that get, went into, was put into place when the salary sacrifice arrangement was entered into. Um, and depending on whether or not those have been met uh, would dictate whether or not it has to stop. I'm certainly not going to disagree with your HR team, but John, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no, uh, not not particularly. I haven't considered uh, the, the Donaldson case. I know it goes back, I think it's uh, about five years ago, the Donaldson case, but I haven't looked at it recently. If your contract doesn't say it stops during maternity pay, it doesn't. And the HMRC have been quite clear. So even in their guidance, they're actually saying, what did your contract state? And again, from the notes from November 2019, they're saying if it was really remuneration, why wasn't tax and national insurance paid? I seek appropriate uh, professional advice on it, but I'd say the implication is you must continue the childcare voucher unless your contractual arrangement specifically excluded it. And most won't, so you have to continue it. And in relation to pensions, pension is actually a remuneration item, so you could say it can stop. However, pensions is covered by the Social Security Act, the Social Security Act requires that where someone is in receipt of maternity pay, including SMP, the employer must continue to contribute at the same rate as if the employee were working. Now, with a salary sacrifice arrangement, the individual has swapped a pay cut for an enhanced employer contribution. Therefore, the contract has been varied to receive a higher employer contribution. Therefore, that's trapped by the Social Security Act. And during maternity leave, where there is any maternity pay, the employer must pay all of the money that it used to pay before they started the maternity leave. Otherwise, you're potentially committing an act of sex discrimination. Sorry, I'm always black and white on those sorts of things, Nick. Yeah. That's and all right. Well, Maria is actually, yeah. Maria's oh. coming on this as well as a, as, as a viewer who's, who's written in a response that she got from ACAS 
on this and said ACAS um, advised her they need to come to an agreement with the employee going on maternity leave as we cannot make deductions from SNP. We said we can do one of the following. One, the employee can stop the pension contributions during maternity leave pay, in which case the employer will also stop with the contributions. Or two, the employee will agree to a voluntary deduction from their gross pay and revert to salary sacrifice arrangement on return from maternity leave. I suggest that's in breach of uh, the Social Security Act. Now, this is a question that Andy could actually give us a view on, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> but you kindly into, in, you kindly put it really well, Simon. I mean, yeah. from our perspective, you've, the individual's done a salary sacrifice agreement where they're given a part of their pay for that employer uh, additional employer contribution, and that will continue during uh, the paid maternity pay time. So uh, we would expect a full normal employer contribution, shall we call it that, that as well as the salary sacrificed. Mm -hmm amount so the full because it's all employer contribution so it yeah. should all be paid yeah. sure i'm thinking an employer could convince the employee maybe to contractually change their mind uh, yeah. the employee would be a foolish to agree to it some brilliant yeah. questions from everybody so thank you so much for posting those in i think some uh, some food for thought for for future discussions no doubt. So thank you ever so much. One that's actually got all of our guests uh, pondering over that visa question on the P11D as well. So thank you for that, Louise. Let's jump over to our next subject then, which is IR35. And I'm going to ask uh, John to lead us on this. Uh, if you can, John, just any updates or bear traps, shall I say, for payroll managers or payroll professionals to be aware of now that we're in full swing of uh, IR35? Well, th thanks, Nick. And we're, we are in full swing. And uh, hopefully, given the changes came in in April, everyone's joined the IR35 party, or, although it's probably uh, the party that you really don't want to be invited to in the first place. But in terms of, of the areas where we're seeing some misconceptions or misunderstandings or potential falling flat, uh, firstly is, is the question of who has to carry out the assessment. And there is a misconception out there that if you get a contractor who carries out their own IR35 assessment and gives it to you, that that's sufficient. Uh, and it isn't the fundamental change or one of the fundamental changes was that it's up to the employer to carry out the IR35 assessment. Uh, and if you don't carry it out, you can carry the can for the tax and the NI. So it is absolutely fundamental that you do that. Now, it, it, I understand that there's always going to be some pressure from the contractor, but you have to remember that you're in charge of that process. Uh, and if you issue a status determination statement that concludes that someone is inside IR35 and they don't like it, then they can challenge that. There's a process there to be followed. But it is fundamental that you carry out the assessment. A couple of other points that people may have missed. Um, everyone's using the CEST tool uh, in the main to work out whether people fall inside or outside IR35. Uh, and HMRC have said that they will stand behind that assessment if the input's correct. But you also have to take reasonable care uh, in terms of carrying out that assessment. Uh, HMRC has given some examples of what constitutes reasonable care and what doesn't. Uh, and I'll just focus, I think, a little bit more on what doesn't constitute reasonable care. Uh, and that would include just making a blanket assessment rather than an individual assessment. Uh, and perhaps importantly, uh, an absence of any proper support or training within an organisation for those who are making those assessments. 
And that also uh, applies to completing the status determination statement. So even if you think you're getting it right, you may have to demonstrate to HMRC that you've taken reasonable care in coming to the outcome. Uh, and if you don't, again, that's going to be subject to challenge. Uh, the other area that we're seeing is that the people think that this is a, a, a one-off transaction. Uh, what you do is you perform the assessment and that's the end of the matter. But it is absolutely fundamental that you keep the process under review. And if there's a change in the nature of the engagement or uh, anything else which is material has changed, you need to carry out a reassessment. Uh, otherwise, you can fall foul uh, of IR35. In terms of sort of bear traps, I think there's an, an element here. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then you'll get a fair sense of whether someone is inside or outside uh, IR35. Uh, and so, for example, if it's someone's first contract and they don't have a history of contracting, they may dilute the picture of self-employment. You know, what's the length of the engagement? You know, I, I can't tell you how many times we've been talking to people about IR35, and they say, "Oh, yeah, he's been with us for five years." Uh, it tends to indicate that it's not a genuine contracting position. You know, is the individual named on the contract? Again, suggests that it may be personal service. So there's a number of things that when you look at it and take a step back, sometimes you can take a holistic view and get a pretty good sense as to where the position sits from uh, an IR35 perspective. Just a point on umbrellas. With umbrellas, as with all companies, you can have good companies and bad companies and good umbrellas and bad umbrellas. Uh, and it is important that you do some sensible due diligence uh, on your contractual chain. And uh, it's probably fair to say that umbrellas are, are somewhat under the spotlight and have been uh, for some time. There was HMR spotlight in 2018 uh, that highlighted tax avoidance. Uh, another one in April 2020 uh, that highlighted the same thing. Uh, and of course, we've had the issue of mini umbrella companies and mini umbrella company fraud. And uh, in May of this year, there was a, a draft policy document submitted to the Treasury calling for greater regulation when it came to umbrella companies. Uh, so it's fair to say that they're somewhat under the spotlight uh, and I anticipate there'll probably be some form of regulation uh, coming their way, probably falling under the same type of regime that regulates uh, employment agencies uh, and employment businesses. So it's clearly a potential reputational issue and also a legal issue if you are using uh, umbrellas who are not going to be compliant in the way that they should be. So I think it's, again, important that you do do your due diligence uh, and work out whether the people that you're contracting with uh, are fully complying with all of their obligations uh, under the relevant regulation. Super. And just to echo what John's already said, as a recruitment uh, owner, I see this a lot with contractors who nine times out of 10 will try and convince us and the end client that they are definitely outside R35. It's often in their interest to be outside R35 because of the uh, the benefits that come with it. Um, and they will do their own assessments and convince you very um uh, confidently that they are outside because they've done their own self-assessment. But please, I just want to, to reiterate what John said. You need to do your own due diligence because it's uh, always in the con or nearly always in the contractor's interest to, to put themselves outside. But if you rely on their information, it's actually yourself as the end user that will be liable for their unpaid tax and then I and, and Nick's if, if you end up making an incorrect uh, 
assessment. So just be really, really clear on that. We've had to do that as a recruitment agency. And uh, unfortunately, from one of our contracts, we've had to move them inside if they wanted to continue as much as they wanted to be outside. And that's because we made our own determination. So just, just to re-emphasize that, because you don't want to be falling foul or getting caught out with that a little bit later on. Um, Anything else to add Nick. to the R35? Sorry. Uh, well, I've got one point just arising from what you said, Nick, about the, an inside IR35 assessment. Um, what we saw in 2017, when the public sector rules came in, where there was a process of individuals um, arguing till they're blue in the face that they're outside uh, IR35, told that they're not and they're inside, what they then came back in uh, and said was, well, in that case, if we're inside IR35, we must be workers under the employment legislation. Uh, therefore, I'd like all my holiday pay that you haven't paid me for, for the last two years. So there's a slight kicker in the tail, potentially, where there's an IR35 assessment. Just, and that ties into what John was saying, really, is that if the person is a personal service worker, they are going to be covered for automatic enrolment. Unless they're truly self-employed or the IR35, because it's a, it's a limited company type setup, if they're named personally, then, you know, a personal service worker will come under automatic enrollment. So it's not just tax and I, it's also pension to be considered, oh, etc. cetera. A good, yes. a good point to make. Yeah. But well, there's an element of thinking a worker would not be inside IR35 because they would be a worker. Yeah, if the answer's worker, then AE will kick in. That's right. And they're not in under IR35. They're subject to student loans attachment of earnings orders, everything. Mm -hmm. so, uh, sometimes I think there's a, a misconception that a deemed employee is an employee. Um, sorry, an employee and a worker are employees and workers. A deemed employee is neither because they're a worker or an employee of their own company. The engager is not their employer. Agree. And so they don't have a right to holiday from the engager. They have a right to holiday from their own business. We're going to give you the pedestal so now, Andy, as we go into pensions as well. And I've already got some questions coming in from the audience in anticipation of this pension subject, which I will get to in due course. So please do bear with for those that put those questions into me already. Uh, but over to you, Andy. Um, tell us a little bit of an update on pensions. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take the floor. Salary sacrifice and maternity, we have sort of covered. So I'll just if, if there's any questions, then obviously we can pick pick that back up. But as we as we were just discussing, if you've agreed, if an individual's agreed a salary sacrifice in exchange for an employer contribution, then that is how it's going to operate. And if they go maternity leave, then that salary sacrifice is still in place from unless there's something strange in the contract, and that's what. I would expect the employer to be paying the full employer contribution during the paid maternity pay area when they're getting their maternity pay. And SMP is not, as we've already discussed, not something you can sacrifice from. So maybe ever pay that, they could take that sacrifice from, and that's down to the employer and the employee's agreement. So on the pensions dashboard, obviously there's a lot, lot been going on, and the the pension. Schemes Act 2021 um, introduced a lot of framework of legislation regarding the pensions dashboard, also the collective defined contribution schemes and new regulatory powers for the for the pensions regulator. And I don't need to go through all of those, obviously, you know, in terms of, you know, things. But because that pension scheme bill came in, that gave that framework for legislation to be laid 
regulations, secondary legislation, we want to call it, so that things like the pension dashboard can um, be enacted. And the principle behind it is, is fairly straightforward, that individuals will be able to access their pension information online securely. They'll be all in one place. Um, and then that will enable better planning for retirement and also um, financial health and well-being as well. So that came in the dashboard a year, couple of, almost probably getting on for two years ago, the whole concept. But during 2020 and during 2021, you've got all the things requiring to be considered and put into place is being developed. So you've got the, you know, who, making sure the person who's logging in is the person, so identity verification, the architecture, the IT structure requirements, and of course the data, what data is going to come out of pension schemes into the dashboard, and what, when will the schemes start to come on board? All the different types of pension schemes, the master trust, the public service schemes, obviously state pension scheme, you know, all that is going to be, is in the process of being looked at and being considered. Um, but um, the time frame is basically this year, next year, everything should be developed and testing with voluntary onboarding of these pension, some pension providers. 2023 onwards, there'll be the proper onboarding and dashboard availability type thing. And ideally, 2024, it should be up and running and people can access their pension data across all the schemes that they've got, even if they've gotten it. So that's, and it, that'd be really great. It'd be a really positive thing for employees to have. In terms of payroll impact, probably the biggest impact will be when the pension provider starts to look at their data and realize that they've got bits missing and they need that those gaps filled because that data comes primarily from the employer. So, and that would be HR and payroll data. That they're going to going to be looking to fill that any gaps um, in that um, information. So, because they they will need to have that information fully provided to the pensions dashboard. I think that's probably the the dashboard in in simple terms. Um, obviously, people can ask questions in terms of um, the actual sacrifice potential. Already covered COVID nineteen aspects. I think. Um, it's probably more along the lines of, I don't know if you're aware, but pension providers are required to ensure the right amount of money is being paid in, in terms of contributions at the right time. And if after a period of time, they haven't been able to get the employer to pay those monies over, then they have to statutory whistleblow to TPR to tell us. And then we'll um, speak to the employer, we'll issue unpaid contributions, notices, et cetera, enforcing that payment. Um, we over COVID, we relaxed the rules so that that reporting deadline that the, the pension provider had to tell us if an employee wasn't being compliant, that was 150 days during COVID. Um, we increased it from 90. It's now gone back to 90 days as at the end of March. So if employers aren't paying it over in time, then if it's gone to the 90-day limit, then we will be notified and we will get involved directly. Obviously, furloughs coming to an end, so there may be a lot of things going in difficulty, employers having difficulty, but we still expect employers to pay money over, um, and that is probably key. 
in simple things as well in terms of COVID-19, you know, that means there's less communication access, people not working in the office, letters going missing. So we do say to employers, please make sure your primary and secondary contact details, who to, who we will write to, who we will email, are up to date on our, our website. So please, if you haven't done that, maybe because personnel have changed, etc. as well, then please go to TPR and, and update your contact details to get the right people informed. In terms of future, I've already mentioned about the Pension Schemes Act, but there are obviously new powers such as, you know, if, if an, an individual gives false information, etc., to the regulator, then, or even to trustees of pension schemes, and that can be up to a million pound fine. There's things such as putting people in jail if they um, willfully and reckless behaviour causes towards a pension scheme, then that, that can be seven years' imprisonment, unlimited fine. So there's a lot more power to make sure that people actually get the income they should have on retirement, um, which is our main focus as a pensions regulator, protecting members and, and their future. Well, I've had a couple of questions coming here for you, Andy, if I can jump to those quickly while we have got the people there. Yeah. Questions, by the way. One of them is uh, specifically for you. Um, it says, for Andy, um, pension contribution from OMP and then AMP, is it different or is it the same? So where the employer is paying um, occupational maternity pay, that's an employer choice of payment. So first of all, if it's normal, I don't know if it's referring to salary sacrifice, if it just means normal contributions, um, it's always important to look at the scheme rules because scheme rules can be greater than statutory requirements. So the scheme rules, for instance, might say that SSP, SMP, all the statutory payments are pensionable. That is the norm, that um, statutory payments are pensionable, so you'd expect contributions to be deducted. So if it's a contributory amount, i.e. the individual pays like 5% of their pay and it's not salary sacrifice, it's just a normal contribution, and that, those contributions will continue, I would expect that the... Um, SMP, OMP, etc., will have those contributions deducted. If it's salary sacrifice, SMP cannot have salary sacrifice, but occupational maternity pay possibly can. You just need to see what the agreement is between the employee and the employer over that. So it's possible that OMP could have the sacrifice amount, maybe the full sacrifice amount deducted from that uh, from that value. Well, that links um, to another question where someone's actually yeah. said, please, can we just come back to this one more time? I'm a little bit confused and I really want this cleared up. So it says, just to be clear, salary sacrifice cannot be deducted from SMP, but employee pension contributions can. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so and normal contributions can, but salary sacrifice cannot come off of SMP. There's a subtle difference in that the employee contribution is based on the pay they receive employer contributions is based on what they would have received if they were working. So it's a lower amount if it's a true employee contribution. If it's yeah. a salary sacrifice, it has to be a full amount as if they were turning up to work every day. But if they're on maternity leave, the a true employee contribution, not a salary sacrifice, is based on the money they get. Yeah, so whatever the pensionable pay is for the con contributions, yeah. Conscious of time, I'm hoping we've got a few minutes here, Hannah, we can get in one final quick poll. We've still got you know, 99% of you with us, which is fantastic. And thank you so much for everyone uh, contributing to the polls and to the questions throughout the course of this uh, this today's uh, payroll question time. But our last poll, looking ahead to the end of CGOS, how will this impact you? Not at all. We haven't used it. Not at all. All employers will be back at work. 
If restrictions are not lifted, we may face redundancies and other comments to chat box, please. So while we're just thinking about that for the last few minutes, I'm going to just talk about the, some hot topics to raise quickly. And I know these it's going to be a struggle for the panel to answer these in five minutes left of time. But um, I know there was a, a, something you wanted to raise regarding right-to-work checks, Simon. Uh, sure, yes. On right-to-work, uh, the law changes for EU citizens from the 1st of July. Unfortunately, the Home Office guidance checklists online have not been changed. But just be aware that there's no requirement to obtain EU settlement status from individuals. There's no requirement for retrospective action from those who may be under EU passports already. The new changes when they are released or the use of the online service becoming a little bit more compulsory than before is for new employments from the 1st of July onwards. Super. And another topic we were talking about as well was that potential, or maybe it's not potential, maybe it's confirmed, tax year change to becoming a calendar year in Ireland. Lou and Samantha, what are your thoughts? Well, it's, I'm hoping it's all talk at the moment. <laughs> it's just we're putting the idea out there and floating it past us to see what we think. But yeah. my advice is don't be too negative. Just take it on the chin and see what happens. Yeah, I think this is, again, this is what we're referring to here is a scoping document that's been published by the Office of Tax Simplification. And actually, some of our biggest debates today have been based on recommendations that originated from the Office of Tax Simplification. But it, it considers changing the tax year from uh, running from the 5th of April through to the 6th of April to ending on the 31st of March and what impact that would potentially have. And it's calling for uh, comments. Uh, what would the implications be? And we had quite a debate before the panel started on this. It also considers well, what, what equally what would be the issues if we change to the 31st of December, like the Republic of Ireland have a calendar year tax year. So uh, so I think it's an interesting one. And I think if you've got a view, I think you need to get involved with the um, Office of Tax Simplification. Um, as I say, I they're so. asking for. I do let's, think let's, it's, get those, let's get those poll results back up, Hannah, if we can, before we uh, we close down and see what they have to say. Okay. 53% we haven't used it. Who would like to comment Very on good. these? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great for the way to finish today's payroll question time webinar. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you so much for all of your questions and for your uh, participation in the polls as well. A little bit of additional good news to finish. PwC reported this week as well that the gender pay gap continues to fall. Um, it was 14.3% in the year reporting 2017-18. It's fallen now, they believe, to 12.5% with a lot more data still to follow. I'm sure that will be a subject error for a future PQT. So I just want to leave it here to say thank you to everyone for joining us today on Payroll Question Time. Just want to take this opportunity to thank this wonderful panel of experts, John, Samantha, Andy, Lou and Simon. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you. Everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the payroll podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.